Turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel. We're going we're gonna to reread the last verse in Samuel 18. We, we did 1 Samuel 18 last week. Two weeks ago, Aaron brought us a message. I think it was two weeks ago. I can't remember. Uh, Aaron brought us a message on trusting God and how God is good and God is sovereign and, and uh, he's able to carry out his purposes and his plans. And how interesting that now we come to this passage. We're going to read verse 30 of chapter 18 and then we're going to read all of chapter 19. It's a great story, so listen along or read along as, as I read it to you. This is God's holy, inspired word. Then the princes of the Philistines came out to battle. And as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David, and Jonathan told David, Saul, my father seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you. And because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand and he struck down the Philistine. And the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. I lost my place, sorry. (laughs) Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore. As the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. And there was war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow, so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with a spear in his hand. And David was playing the lyre, and Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear. But he eluded Saul that he, so that he struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him so that he might kill him in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michal let David down through the window and he fled away and escaped. Michal took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to come to take David, she said, he's sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I might kill him. But when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with the pillow of goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Michal, why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he's escaped? And Michal answered Saul, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? Now David fled and escaped and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Nioth. And it was told Saul, behold, David's at Nioth and Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. 
And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul and they prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well as in Sekou and he said, where are Samuel and David? And one said, behold, they're at Niath and Ramah. And he went there to Niath and Ramah and the spirit of God came upon Saul also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Niath and Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it said, is Saul also among the prophets? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for great accounts in history, great stories like this that that teach us about ourselves, that teach us about you, and that reveal your character, your nature, and how you work. God, I pray that we would see you. God, I pray that you would actually increase our trust, our faith in you, Even though we might encounter difficulties and trials and unexpected things, God, I pray that we would see that you are our refuge. You are our strength. You are our protection. God, I pray that you would speak to each of our hearts. I pray that you would be with me as I speak. In your name we pray. Amen. You know, when I was a young boy in Virginia, we used to play war. This was back in the days before you had paintball or or airsoft and and since we weren't allowed to shoot each other with BBs anymore, not that we ever did that, um, because we get our eyes poked out, right? I mean, that was the big thing in the 80s. But um, so we would, we would make do, and we would have these wooden replicas of guns, and we would say, pow! And then our friend would go, oh, and fall down. And we would have like a certain count, and then they could get up, and we would run around. So we would, we would separate into two groups, and one group would go across the neighborhood, and the other group would stay here. And then we would have strategy, and either we would hide and wait for them, or they would hide, and we would kind of get to them. But I remember one day, my, my friend Jason and I were, were waiting behind this bank, and there's a little creek behind his house and his neighbor's house, and we kind of had snuck down into the creek, and we were kind of peeking our heads up over the bank. And my neighbor, he or Jason's neighbor, he had, he had planted a garden and the garden was kind of overgrown and it grew down into the bank and he had he planted a bunch of strawberries and tomatoes and, and it was prolific and it grew a lot of them, but we're peeking our heads up over there and, and he, somehow he, apparently somebody or something was eating his produce, and, but we didn't know that. And um, so we're sneaking around, poking our heads over the bank, looking for our friends to come around, but the neighbor, he saw us hiding there behind his strawberries and tomatoes in the bank and kind of peeking up. And so the next thing we know, we, we peek our heads up and he's got a rifle pointed at us from his porch. And he's yelling at us, hey, come out with your hands up or I'll shoot you. And we're, <laughs> we're terrified. I mean, this is not a POW gun. This is one that actually fires. And he was an old geezer, I mean, in the 60s or 70s or so. And so we believed him. Um, he was crotchety. And so... He threatened to, to shoot us. And like any self-respecting eight-year-old boys, we hightailed it out of there. We, we're not going to stand up with somebody putting a gun. We, we just ducked down. We ran. We ran through the field. We ran through the edge of the forest and, and, and the woods there. And we skirted the edge and we ran back to our house. Because that's, you know, I was convinced that my dad and my house, because my dad had been in the military, and, you know, so I was convinced that my dad and my house, it was an impenetrable fortress. That was a place of safety, a place of refuge. 
Now, thankfully, I think that his neighbor was just trying to scare us. I don't think he actually was going to shoot us. I'm still not sure to this day, but I don't think actually he was going to because he never did later. But, but I went to the person, the place that I thought could protect us. Now, if he really wanted to shoot us, I'm, I'm pretty certain he would have been able to hit an eight-year-old boy, um, you know, less than 50 yards away. But, but what we see in, in, in this passage here is, is, is David was in danger. His, his life was in danger, and, and he ran. He's going to the place of refuge, a place where he, he thought he would find safety and security. First, he goes home, and he looks for, for safety there. Actually, before that even, um, he relies on his friendship with Jonathan, the king's son. Certainly, his friendship with Jonathan, the king's son, will protect him, right? But, but no, not really. It does temporarily protect him, and that was a blessing of God. And then he goes to his own house, thinking that place would be a place of refuge because Michal was Saul's daughter, right? Surely that would be safe. And for a time it was, but yet God used Michal to, to protect David, But then he runs to the place of refuge and protection, thinking, well, Samuel, God's oracle on earth, God's very word incarnate in a sense, or he spoke God's word. He thought maybe the prophet, the great prophet, he will be a protection and a refuge. And in some sense, maybe he was, but not really. I think think as as we go through this passage, what what God wants us to see is is that ultimately, Ultimately, God is our protection and refuge. God is our protection and refuge. He's our place of safety. He's our place of protection. He's our place of security. He is ultimately the only one in whom we can trust. And I love that this morning, the, unbeknownst to, to Philip as he was picking the songs, I'm sure he read ahead, but he had no idea what my main idea was going to be. And I love how the songs, God through his Holy Spirit, just kind of led us to sing songs that kind of drew out that point. And that was a words of encouragement we heard as well. It's kind of neat how God works that way, isn't it? But, you know, it seems strange to us at the very beginning. You you end verse 30 in chapter 18, and you end with this great high point, right? Look down your Bibles in in, in verse verse 30 of chapter 18. You know, ends that David has more success than all the servants of Saul, and his name is highly esteemed. And you're thinking, well, David's the the anointed king. What's going to happen next? Well, he's going to take his throne, and there's going to be a good transition But just as he's feeling secure in himself, maybe, what happens? Saul tries to kill him (laughs) for no good reason. He'd done nothing against Saul. He'd only fought for Saul victoriously on many occasions so far. It seems strange. You think, well, why is God... Why did God anoint him and then wait for so many years to actually put David in place? And why is God allowing David to be persecuted? What is this? A persecuted king that doesn't make sense, right? But I think we're going to learn from this passage that God's not toying with David. He's not fickle. He's not capricious. he's He's not fickle with us. He doesn't toy with us. But he does allow, even though he's called us to something, sometimes... He he puts difficulty in our place so that we can learn to rely on him and to turn to him as our refuge. We can see in this passage that in the end, the the, the lesson is that God can be trusted. He's always at work in and through circumstances. And in this passage, he's developing David and he's bringing about his good purposes. But the very beginning, it can be difficult, right? And that's the first 
The first point we're going to look at, the first idea that we come across is this idea of a persecuted king. And I think I have a question mark there because it doesn't seem to make sense, right? Is, it, is, it, is God's king, could he really be a persecuted king? Does it make sense on the surface of things for God to call someone to be king then allow him to be persecuted, does it? 1 Samuel 19 almost comes across like a really good soap opera, doesn't it? It's a great story. But we can learn so much from this dramatic account if we don't read it detached. It's, you know, it's really easy. When I was a kid, I read the story as just a great story. Wow, that's really cool. Boy, Saul was not very nice. And the Holy Spirit just really, he, that was weird. He made Saul naked. That, I don't understand that one, but we'll get to that in the end. But think about the fact David was God's own king. I want you to think about that for a moment. David, David was God's own king. The people had chosen Saul to be their king, and yet God says, I'm going to make a king of my choosing. You had a king of your own choosing, and I let that happen, but I'm going to bring about a king of my choosing, one who's a man after my own heart. God had already, through Samuel, told Saul that the kingdom had been removed from him probably a few years earlier, and that it had been given to a neighbor who was better than him. But now many years later, and, and David, think about David this whole time. David's been continually faithful, right? David's been continually faithful. He's got a call as God's anointed. Um, he's got continual victories. He's at the top of his game. He is more victorious than any of the servants of Saul. So he is the baddest warrior in all of Israel, right? So how was he rewarded? At this high point, right? When his fame is brought to his name and he has success and you're just thinking, oh man, boy, David's gonna have a success after success until finally he becomes the king. But yet we see in the very first verse, look down on chapter 19, he says, and Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and all of his servants that they should kill David. He probably convened some special meeting to his servants and, and Jonathan and he said, you know what? I want you all to assassinate David. David, he's doing what God called him to do. And you ever, you ever, you ever in a place where you're, you're faithful to God or you, you're, as much as we can be faithful to God, you're being faithful to God, you're trusting in him, you're, you're pursuing him, you believe he's called you to a specific course or action, but yet then all of a sudden for no reason, it doesn't seem fair, you encounter difficulty? What are you tempted to, how are you tempted to react? How are you tempted to respond Tempted to think, wait a minute, God, this isn't fair. I've been, I've been working for you. I've been, I've been obeying you. I've been good, right? As if our performance somehow earns God's favor, which it doesn't. We can be tempted that way. To, to wonder, a persecuted Christian? What? A persecuted king? Like David, doing what God's called you to, it might mean that people hate you for it. Saul was jealous and hated David. He was envious of David. He continued to let his sin go unchecked, and he should have experienced conviction and repented. He continued to, to kind of follow this downward spiral is what we're seeing in this passage, the beginning of the, the horrific downward spiral of Saul into madness, really. The self-indulgent, self-excusing, self-righteous, self-justifying sins of Saul, which are really all of our temptations as well. God's exalted the name of David. He demonstrated that he was with David through his powerful deliverance. But Saul 
was jealous for his own glory. He saw David as a threat to his own self-rule. Saul, if you fast forward a couple thousand years, he, he was like other people, or maybe other people were like Saul, the Pharisees, the religious leaders in the day, they, they sought their own self-rule. They sought to take Jesus' life as a result. How terrifying the trajectory is that, that Saul is on. It's the same trajectory, really, that, that any of us who give in to jealousy and envy and self-righteousness and are seeking our own self-rule will end up on. This is a warning, really, in the midst of this. There's all kinds of things to learn. Sins entertained are dangerous. Envy entertained can lead to egregious hatred and murderous intent and, and eventually madness. And rejection by God as we reject God Saul Saul was like the Pharisees. The Pharisees were like Saul. They saw Jesus as a threat to their own rule and sinful desires. You know, I think sometimes we're like Saul too, right? We can be like Saul in that we can see God as a threat to our own self-rule. And so we follow our own sinful desires. The good news we see in this passage is that God, in the midst of those persecution, God's able to preserve his anointed one and keep him for the task that's appointed. So, in contrast, we're going to see in the next few verses that, that Jonathan loves David. And he loves him even more, so he doesn't seek his own glory, he doesn't seek his own position, but he seeks the, uh, the good of David. And, and Jonathan, in effect, instead of seeking his own self-rule, which he was the next in line to become king, he seeks the glory of David, who he knows will become king. And I was thinking, you know, how do I respond to God and the glory of King Jesus? You know, so often I say, God, I, wanna, I, wanna, I want your glory. I want to live for you. But really, I want a little bit of self-rule still. I want a little bit of self-exaltation, just a little bit of glory, a little bit of honor, a little bit of accolades. You ever feel that way? If you're honest, I think you, you'll say yes. You know, I was thinking, but boy, what a sobering passage that God, let me not be like that. Let me seek to exalt Jesus in my life and my actions like Jonathan. Well, Saul was trying to conspire to assassinate David, we see. But David, he, he, God was not yet putting David in his place. But just the right time, God was going to put David in place. But it ends up probably being even more years later until that happens. And I was thinking about that, how, how difficult that must have been for David. Put yourself in David's shoes. But every circumstance was designed for David to make him into the man who God had prepared him to be, right? That's what you can see in the story. This is all about giving God glory and David in the end trusting in God for his refuge. You know, David, he came just at the right time in Israel's history. He, God wasn't making a mistake by allowing Saul to persecute him. He was appointed king years before, but God was intentionally delaying him getting to the throne it was unexpected to David, but not to God, and it was in God's good timing. So often our lives are like that, right? You know, they're, they're unexpected. From facing a lion and a bear to the ridicule of his brothers, David being marginalized to facing Goliath and the Philistines to running from Saul, all of this was part of God's plan to put his king in place, to develop his king to make him into the very man he needed to be, the man after God's own heart. 
And it was actually through all these things that God developed David in his character and grew David's character. So God's, God's view of David, who says he made after my own heart, was true, but not fully yet. And God used these things to develop David to even more a man after his own heart. We can see that through Psalms. You know, God had a plan to put his king in place, and it seemed delayed, but it wasn't. Every temptation, every opposition, every difficulty, every bit of suffering was designed to make David into God's own man. And you know what? It was, it was that way with Jesus as well. He, he was God's son. He is God's son. But yet, it says in Hebrews that he earned the right to be called the son of God. How did he earn that right? Through persecution. Through waiting, you know? Somewhere around 30-ish, Jesus waited that many years to be revealed as the king. In one sense, he's revealed his birth, but nobody really got it, except for the shepherds, and then you don't really hear much later. We have a few pictures in his childhood, his early years. We know almost nothing about, aside from a few scenes, but those were not wasted years. His relative obscurity were part of his earning the right to be called the son of God as a human. His years of humble, Jesus' years of humble, silent obedience without recognition were seen by God. Keep that in mind with David, with Jesus, with you. His family difficulties, you know, Jesus had family difficulties. He was rejected by his brothers and sisters. They thought he was nuts, at least to begin with. Later, they saw the truth. But all that was to designed by God to test and then to reveal his character. The opposition from the world, the, the devil, the minions of the devil, the, the religious hypocrites, the political leaders, they were all part of God's good plan. The, the true David, the true king, experienced the same things that David did. And so how much more will not we, following after God's king, experience those things, those difficulties, that persecution? We shouldn't be surprised. If it was a persecuted king, and we're the persecuted king's followers. We can trust in God through persecution. But we're going to make it through persecution. All of this in this story and for Jesus and for us is, is not a moment too late nor too early. You know, I was thinking if, if, if all of this is how David and then God's ultimate anointed one, Jesus is put in place and lived, how much more so will we, his servants, follow a similar path equally designed by God to fulfill his good purpose, his good plan for us, and in the same way, end up glorifying him? Don't take a short-term view of your suffering, persecution, your difficulty, your opposition. If God's king was persecuted like this, sure, we, we will experience the same. But the good news is that we see so much more in this passage. It doesn't stop there. There's some more things for us to see. So the next thing we're seeing in both Jonathan and Michal is, is personal protection. God uses people to bring protection. He uses people to surround David, to, to be a means of protection at times. God uses Jonathan to warn David. You would think that, boy, Jonathan, he's next in line. And when Saul says assassinate David, maybe he's thinking, well, Jonathan, surely will be on board with me because he's a threat. And yet, he doesn't give in to envy and jealousy and self-preservation. He delights in David and he gives everything up in effect for David. And he says, be on your guard and I'm personally gonna put my life on the line because to advocate for the king's enemy was a deadly risk. And in verses four and five, look down your Bibles, we see that Jonathan speaks to Saul on David's behalf. And, 
And Jonathan was loyal, and he advocated for David before his father. He was bold and yet respectful. He challenged with the truth and, and well-reasoned arguments based on God's word. And he appeals um, to the fact in Deuteronomy that it says that we're not to incur blood guilt or shedding innocent blood, something a king was never to do. And so he appeals based on God's word to Saul, even if he doesn't quote it directly. That's what he's referring to. And then Jonathan just serves as this model, really, for how we should respond to defend God's king, doesn't he? We'll read down, look down at verses six and seven. We read that evidently, at least for the moment, Jonathan's words sunk in. They take effect on Saul. Saul relents, and he says, by the living God, that David will not be killed. But it was short-lived. David, Jonathan tries. He brings David the good news. He seeks to, to keep David safe and exalt David to his previous place and to glorify David in a sense. And, but soon enough, though, look down at verse eight. It's kind of foreboding. War came to the Israelites again. And David goes out and he fights the Philistines. And he says he struck them with a great blow so they fled before him. David was this mighty warrior. He calls the enemies of the Lord to flee. He strikes down the Philistines. But look at verse 9 and 10. Look down again. No doubt David's fame spurred this jealous thoughts of Saul again. So Saul, this paranoid madman is what you get this picture of, Right? He, who sits in their house with a spear in their hand? It doesn't say he's sitting in this, on his throne or he's sitting you know, where the king gives his decrees or he's sitting in his court. He's sitting in his house with a spear in his hand. He is a paranoid man. He is afraid of any threat to his rule, to his authority, to his strength. He's ready to repulse any threat to his throne, defend himself at any moment, and how often are we like Saul? In contrast, David is playing the lyre, no doubt singing songs to the Lord in, in worship as he's been renowned for. And, and we see this, this odd thing, this Saul. He had, he had made a vow by the oath of the living God not to kill David. And yet now we see just so shortly after, he's, he's ready to kill David again. And, and Gordon Ketty, he writes of Saul. I have a quote up here for you. He says, Saul was living a lie That's why I could so easily make pious vows and contradict them almost within the same breath. Without a saving change, a sinner is a mess. He hardly knows himself. And even though he knows that God will judge wickedness, he goes on doing it as if he had a death wish and encourages others along the same fatal road. That's what Saul's doing. That's what we're prone to do as well but for the grace of God. He obviously experienced some form of conviction. He was a man torn between what he knew was right and what he wanted, but what he needed was to truly repent and experience the change of God's saving grace. All of us need to truly repent. We need to see the saving grace of Jesus Christ to change us, don't we? It's a guy across town, Richard Phillips. He he wrote a commentary on this passage, and and he shares. He says, we were unable to live up to our moral pretensions. I love that way of putting that. We're unable to live up to our, our moral pretensions and are capable of sins that we would eagerly condemn in others. Isn't that true? And that must finally condemn us before God. That is why appeals to common grace, which is good, by the way, and rational prudence, which is also good, they ultimately fail in restraining sin. That's what we've seen in Saul. Jonathan appealed to common grace. He had, he had appealed to a rational prudence with his father, but it ultimately failed in restraining sin in Saul. It ultimately will fail in restraining sin in us. 
Go back to the quote. The power of sin so infects the mind that men and women are suicidally irrational in their pursuit of wealth, power, lust, or hatred. Boy, that strikes to our hearts, doesn't it? Well, as a result of this unrepentant sin, ironically, Saul sought to strike down David. It's the same words, but David struck down the Philistines. Now Saul wants to strike down David. Verse 11, Saul sends messengers to David's house. Just picture this. David's running. He goes to his house. He thinks, oh, this is Saul's daughter. Surely I'll be safe here. Surely he won't attack me here. And yet, they're waiting outside. But Michal, she knew her father, and he, she knew what her father would do, and she loved David, so she seeks to protect him. She says, David, you better get out of here. And so she lowers him down through the window. Maybe their, maybe their house was on the, on the wall, most likely. It was on the wall because this picture of lowering down of the windows, you're lowering down outside of the defenses, but we don't know for sure. But, but she's, she's been used uh, as a personal means of protection. And God does that. God uses people in our lives, people like Jonathan, people like Michal, to to bring protection to us, to preserve us, to care for us. So verse 12 says she let him down through the window and like in Virginia when I was a kid, he hightails it out of there. You know, he gets out of there. Mikhail tries to buy David some time so she comically kind of pulls the Ferris Bueller, right? She, she makes the, sorry, another 80s reference. Uh, you know, when you're raised in the 80s, this is what happens. Um, but so she puts this household idol underneath the, the covers and covers it up and puts this goat hair pillow, maybe the same color as David's hair, you know, dark hair, goat, dark hair, David. So she puts him in this, covers this up and says, oh, he's sick, see? And just kind of cracks the door open, barely lets any light in there. They go back to Saul and they said, he's sick. Saul says, I don't care. Bring him up on his bed to me. And so they go to get David and they find an idol. So she's given David some time. She's, she's been a means of God's personal protection. David's run out of the city. Michal tells Saul, Saul says, why did you protect my enemy? And by the way, protecting the enemy of the king is worthy of a death sentence, and Michal knows that. So she says, oh, well, David said he would kill me. Now, it doesn't mean that she's not being true to David. She's also preserving her life. Maybe David asked her to in order to absolve her, protect her. In any case, David, I mean, Saul refers to David as an enemy or foe. So the next sentence we see, David's fleeing, escaping to Samuel. Look down at verse 18 in your Bibles. The very next thing we see in this passage, the, the third thing we see is, is a spiritual protection, the beginning of a spiritual protection. So this persecuted king has experienced the personal protection of God through his people. Now he's going to experience a spiritual protection. David, he probably went to Samuel for protection, for wisdom, for guidance from the Lord. But, but Samuel himself kind of wasn't a protection at all. We don't see Samuel doing anything. He's presiding over the elders of the prophets. That's what kind of the word in the original language means. This company of the prophets, this elders of the prophets. But what does Samuel do when, 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 Saul, when David first gets to him? Samuel is in Ramah in his home, home territory, a few miles north of Gibeah, where Saul was. And, and Samuel, he runs. He runs with, with David. They run away together. And they go to Nioth. So Samuel's not really protection. David thought, well, you have a prophet of God. He'll protect me. But they, they run away together. Samuel's like, I think, you know what? Let's get out of here. But something miraculous happens. Look, look down your Bibles in, in verse 19 to 21. 
want you to read this with me. It's not on your overheads, I believe, but we, we look down your Bible. It says, and it was told Saul, behold, David is at Nath and Ramah. And Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing his head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. What in the world? They, they weren't following God. Look at verse 21. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers. They also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time. And they also prophesied. And God is, God is showing that he is the one who protects. And he does that by his spirit. And he has this threefold. And in scripture, whenever you see things threefold, it's to emphasize something that, that God is showing that he is thwarting every human attempt. Because God, through his spirit, protects God confuses the enemies who are sent to take David as king. And then look down at verses 22 to 24. It's kind of a weird account, right? Saul himself, he's like, well, if I send messengers, I'm just going to go do it myself. You can't get something done, somebody to do it right, you know, just do it yourself. And so he goes, and he too is undone to the power of the Spirit, and he's helpless before God's Spirit, and he strips himself of his dignity. See, stripping himself of his, of his robes, they were, it was a symbolic stripping of his role. It was a stripping of his power, the signs of his power. It was a stripping of his position, his authority, his rule. What was God doing here? Why did he make Saul naked? Now, this doesn't necessarily mean he was naked without any clothes, but it could have meant that he was stripped down to his bare tunic, which would have been considered naked back then. But in any case, what's God doing? Why does he do that? That's kind of weird, right? No, God is opposing those who trust in themselves. He's opposing the proud. He's making low the proud. And he's beginning to exalt his king. And so God lays low the arrogant Saul. Saul had lost his dignity. He lost all respect. God stripped away Saul's ability to trust in himself. And he made Saul know that. You would think that at that moment, after Saul got up, he says he was there the whole day and that night, you would think the next morning Saul would be a little humbled and would think, you know, maybe I really should submit to God. Maybe it's time to repent. Unfortunately, we're going to find out later he does not. He was helpless and exposed before God and all of his servants. You know, we're at times, God, God brings us times in our life. He exposes us. He lays us naked in his sense and bare she says that in Hebrews, that we're, we're naked and bare before him to whom we must give an account. He sees it all. We're exposed before him. We have no dignity on our own except the dignity that he gave us as his creation and that he restores to us in Christ. But you know, God bids us to come and be clothed in him. Doesn't he? He says, you know, come, buy from me. Come, put on my robes to cover your nakedness. Come, put on the robes of Christ's righteousness. Come, receive from me. Don't trust in yourself. You can't earn that. So he calls everyone to repent. But you see, in the end of chapter 19, we see God's the one who's finally able to protect David spiritually. God uses different means. He uses a friend, a family member to provide protection for a time. But in the end, God allowed David purposefully to get to the place where he could not rely on his own strength. Now remember this. David was the most mighty of all Saul's warriors. He was the mightiest warrior in all of Israel, mightier than Saul. 
And yet God did not allow David to trust in his own strength, his own notoriety, his own fame. He, he didn't allow that. He didn't allow David to trust in the king's son, in his friendships. He didn't allow David to trust in his family, his wife. He didn't allow that. He didn't allow David to trust in Samuel, the prophet, the man of God. Ultimately, God was bringing David. That's what we're seeing here. God was allowing David to get him to the place where he couldn't rely on his own strength. And I believe that God designed things this way because God wanted David to rely and trust in him, to see him as ultimate refuge. And you know what? I I know that this happened. How do we know this happened? Because Psalm 59. What do I mean by that? Well, um, I think we have Psalm 59 on the overheads for you. The beginning of Psalm 59, it reads like this. It says, a miktam of David. When Saul, here's when it happened. It happened in this occasion when we're reading about in Samuel 19. That's the setting for Psalm 59. So it says, a miktam of David. When Saul sent men and they watched the house in order to kill him. And it begins, David speaking, deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. And he goes on, he says, for no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord, for no fault of mine, they run and make ready. Awake, come to meet me and see. Where does David turn? Where is his gaze? What is this forcing him to do? It's forcing him to look up to cry out to God, to look to him through no fault of his own. He's experiencing this. And you in your life, you might be experiencing persecution, difficulty, opposition, trials, temptations. Don't give in to, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, don't give in to the idea that some of God's punishing you. No, he's getting you to the place where you will look up and see from where your help comes. And so you too will say, wait, come to meet me and see. His persecution, the insufficiency of his own strength, the inability of his friend and family to protect him in the end, it pushes David to the place where he looks up to see God to be his protection. Let's skip down in Psalm 59 to verses 16 and 17. We're not going to read the whole psalm. Go back and read that on your own, maybe later on today. At the end of the psalm, David writes, and he uses some, some great analogies about the people who seek him. They're like bloodthirsty dogs. They're not satisfied. They just want to eat him. And, and in, in verse 16, he says, but as for me... Here's where this persecution of the king and, and finally all protections being stripped away from him have led him into be. He says, but as for me, I shall sing of your strength. Yes, I shall joyfully sing of your loving kindness in the morning. You see, he's, he is on the run. If you remember the beginning of Psalm 59, he's on the run. They're surrounding his house and yet it puts him to the place where he sees that only God is his strength. Let that be your response, my response. He says, yes, I shall sing joyfully of your loving kindness in the morning for, how can David say this in the midst of of things? He says, for you have been my stronghold and a refuge in the day of my distress. Oh, my strength. God, is what he's saying. Oh, you, God, my strength. I will sing praises to you for God is my stronghold, the God who shows me loving kindness David had become this mighty warrior, but God showed him it wasn't his might that saved. It wasn't Jonathan. It wasn't Michal. It, it wasn't Samuel, God's prophet. In the end, it was God's strength and love and kindness that preserved David in the morning through the power of his Holy Spirit. In the end, 
for us. It is not our strength. It's not our ability to obey God. It's not our keeping of God's laws. It's not us being good Christians and dressing the right way or talking the right way. It's, it's not our friends and family. It's not even people in the church. All of those means that God does use for our protection. They're good, and we give thanks for those things. But ultimately, it's God in whose strength we rely. He is our refuge. He's our true protection. You see this last verse, looked in, in the very end of chapter 19. It says, thus it is said, you know, Saul is, is laying there crazy prophesying. So as it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? This mocking uh, expression of derision, expressing kind of utter bewilderment is how could, how could a king be like this? He's no king. God lays Saul low spiritually and literally. He could have killed him right then and there. And you know what? He still extends grace. He doesn't do that. He extends grace to Saul. And we're more often like Saul, but there's hope. And we're gonna I wanna focus on, on something just very shortly in the next couple minutes and it's this, this idea that we need to remember from this passage and we see that God extends a protection to his king. And that's the last thing that we're gonna see is this, this an extended protection. You know, over the last year, I've, I've um, on a couple occasions when I've had a big purchase, I've, I've bought this extended protection plan from Square Trade, you know? They are always offering to it everywhere. Most of the time I turn it down, but I'm like, yeah, maybe the last time. That broke after a year, so maybe I'll do that this time. And I get this extended protection plan. Most of the time when I buy it, it doesn't pan out. When I don't buy it, it breaks. So you never know, right? Um, but this is an extended protection plan that we don't purchase with our own money or efforts or good looks or, or family or title. It's, it's an extended plan that comes through the king. It's, it's given to the king. It's given to King David. It's given to King Jesus this extended protection that God extends his protection to his son. You think about Jesus' life. Ultimately, Jesus was the persecuted king, yet God extends his ultimate protection. He, he extends... At just the right moment, he allows Jesus to die, to be a sacrifice on our behalf, in in our place, and then we can experience this, receive this extended protection plan, but we don't buy it. It was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. His His sacrifice buys us this extended protection plan and it's extended to us. And how is it extended to us? Because he adopts us. All who place their trust, their faith in his strength, in God as our fortress, in God as our refuge, in Jesus Christ, if we flee to him, God gives us adoption. And then he does something miraculous. He extends the protection he gave to David the king and that he ultimately rested on his son Jesus as he resurrected him to new life, that he gives us, he extends us those same rights. And we receive that inherently through Christ, that extended protection of Christ as his sons and daughters. So if in your life you're thinking, oh, you know what, I'm, I'm worried about these circumstances that they won't turn out for my good. I'm worried that maybe I will die. I'm worried that this person will be against me. I don't know if I can sustain or endure this. If you're fearful about other people or circumstance situations, remember, as you've been extended protection in his son and now you are sons and daughters of God if you place your faith in him, now only if you've placed your faith in him, by the way, 
if you've, if you've done that, that you are in God's hands and no one can take you from his hand. What that means is, in a sense, now don't, don't read me wrong, but in a sense, you are immortal until God allows you to die. No one can kill you until God allows that. No one can persecute you unless God allows. No one can harm you unless God allows that. But you can trust that just like God allowed David, just like God allowed his son to suffer, through that, God will bring about his glory and he will bring about your good and he will resurrect you. God is your refuge. And that's our protection. He will keep all who trust in Jesus faithful and raise us up to be with him in Christ Jesus forever. Now, if you are not yet in the place where you've placed your faith in Jesus and you've experienced any conviction, desire to live for God, any desire to repent and respond, to trust in him, to sustain you, to keep you, here's my appeal to you. Don't harden your heart like Saul. Christian, don't harden your heart like Saul. Maybe you grew up in the church. You think you're a Christian, but yet you continually give in to self-rule. Don't harden your heart. Turn to him. It's not too late for anyone, no matter how callous or how unfaithful, to trust in the grace of God's Son, Jesus Christ, freely available to all, no matter how far or cold or calloused or sinful we've been. We only seek his grace, his forgiveness, and be found in him. David sought refuge in God, and he was rescued. Psalm 2, it seems like it could have been written directly to Saul. We don't know. Not all the Psalms are in order, by the way, of chronological order. Psalm 2 reads, and we don't know if David wrote it, but it sounds like something David would write. He says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun! Lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. And he kind of ends, he says, blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's where we need to rest. Where David rested, where this Samuel 19 rests with taking refuge in God and seeing that we, we can take refuge in God. He has an extended protection for us. And if God is for us, the apostle Saul, Paul writes, God is for us, who can be against us? God didn't spare his own son. How will he not freely with him also give us every good thing that we need? What better place to end if I have the band going to come up? I'll read, um, I'll read the old, old hymn version of the song we're gonna sing in closing. So let me read it to you as the band's coming up. The old hymn. It says, how firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. Here, here this is really God speaking to you. Fear not, I am with thee, O be not dismayed, for I am thy God and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand, upheld by my righteous omnipotent hand. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow. For I will be with thee thy troubles to bless and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. The soul... Though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, 
no, never forsake. Amen? Let's stand and sing, please.